Welcome to The Workplace, the podcast where we try to make the places we work, places we love to work. I'm Andrew Scarcella. Every episode, we'll be talking with a different expert about what makes great workplace cultures tick. A Navy fighter pilot, an HR analyst, a fashion icon, who knows? Will they have all the answers? Nope. But with each one, we'll get a little closer to figuring out what we can do to build workplace cultures where people are happy, healthy, and inspired to do the best work of their lives. This episode, we'll be talking with journalist and author Charles Duhigg about how our everyday habits shape us and how, with a little work, we can build better ones. Charles Duhigg has spent much of his career studying and reporting on the science of behavior. He's the author of the bestsellers The Power of Habit and Smarter, Better, Faster, and wrote for many years at the New York Times, where he won a Pulitzer Prize for his reporting. He has appeared on This American Life, NPR, The News Hour with Jim Lehrer, Frontline, and many other infinitely more respectable programs than this one. Join us after the interview for The Takeaway, where we'll talk about the ideas and actions we can take with us to our own workplace cultures to make them better. Charles was interviewed by Cassie Whale, a writer, journalist, and fan favorite here at The Workplace. Tell me, Cassie, why do you absolutely refuse to answer your fan mail? Great question, Andrew. I would say it's a combination between being too busy and not getting any. I don't believe you. I wrote you one just the other day. Let me check my spam folder and get back to you. Ouch. So, Charles Duhigg, what was he like? You've been a fan of his for quite some time, haven't you? Yes, such a fan of Charles Duhigg. I come from a journalism background myself, so during my undergrad... I followed his career all the way up until he won the Pulitzer. During my MBA, I've been assigned reading his books. I really feel like I've been following him and his career from the very beginning. That said, it was an absolute pleasure to actually meet him, let alone sit down and interview him. Did you get starstruck? I did, yes. I can't blame you. Well, I'm really excited to hear what you guys talked about, so let's get to it. My name is Charles Duhigg. I'm the author of The Power of Habit and Smarter, Faster, Better. Um, until recently, in the last decade or so, I was a reporter at the New York Times where I did investigative reporting for the business section. And now I write for magazines, um, particularly the, the New Yorker and the Atlantic magazines, and write more books. And I, um, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and then left to go to college on the East Coast, um, and afterwards went and moved abroad for a little while. I lived in the Middle East, um, in, in Cairo, and then in other areas in the Middle East, and came back to Albuquerque, actually, to start a company where we would build medical education campuses. And after doing that for a couple of years, and I felt like I needed to go to business school in order to understand more about how business worked. So I I went to Harvard Business School and got an MBA there. And halfway through Harvard Business School, made the decision that I'd much rather be a journalist than be a business person. So I went into journalism and worked for the LA Times and then the New York Times. And while there, um, I was a correspondent in Iraq uh, during the war. This is right after. This is in um, 2003, 2004. So right after uh, the U.S. had first gone into Iraq. And one of the things that I noticed when I was in Iraq was how frequently the military functioned really, really well because of this emphasis and focus on studying how to build the right habits among troops, right? That in many ways, a lot of what we know about habit formation actually comes from the military. The military is basically the the largest habit change machine in history and always has been. And if you think about it, that makes a lot of sense because 
if someone is shooting at you, your instinct is to run away. But the military has to teach you this habit to shoot back, right? To put yourself into danger. Um, and nowadays, if you're in a war zone, you know, we have email and we have telephones. So it's not uncommon for troops to to email with their wives or husbands every single night from from the theater of war. And so if you don't do things like teach good communication habits, you see people who get into fights over email and they get distracted and they're distracted when they're on patrol the next day because they're in this stressful situation. And so the military has spent a lot of time thinking and learning about how habits work. And when I saw that in Iraq, I thought it was interesting. I thought to myself, this is something that deserves to be studied more, not just for people who are in dangerous places, but also for people who just want to exercise more, or lose weight, or or teach their kids to, uh, to do a better job of reading every night. So I want to go back to that moment in business school when you said, I wanted to become a journalist and not business. Why journalism instead of business? I was trying to decide whether to go into politics in New Mexico, where I'd grown up, or into journalism. And business was kind of a a way to to make politics possible. And so I went back between the first and second year of business school. It's typical that people go and they get an internship and that becomes the job that they do after they they graduate from business school. And so I went back to New Mexico, um, which was fairly unusual to to do. And I worked with a um a real estate private equity group. And it was the people I was working with were wonderful and really, really interesting. But but the thing I realized about business was you get more and more successful at business when you do the same thing over and over and over again, faster and faster and faster, right? So particularly when it comes to something like investing in real estate, how quickly can I look at deals and analyze them? How quickly can I figure out which deals look like deals I've done before that were successful and kind of fit them into that same structure? And I worried that I would become um, bored, frankly. The more successful I was, the more bored I'd be. Um, whereas journalism is actually exactly the opposite. Journalism, your job is to essentially learn something new every single day. If you try and do the same thing every every day, you're you'll be a failure. Um, and I liked learning. And the, the other thing that happened was that you know I was thinking of going into politics in New Mexico, and I I realized that you know there's a good chance that you lose when you run, um, which is a, a a real possibility. And I I would be unhappy living in New Mexico. Um, if I had tried to run for office and if I'd lost and if New Mexico was sort of the 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 boundaries of my life, that I'd probably be unhappy there. Um, basically, it came down to a question of who do I want to sort of spend my life hanging out with? And I like hanging out with journalists. They tend to be interesting people to me. Um, and politicians are also very interesting, but but less so. I tend to agree. I like hanging out with journalists. I study journalism. Mm. So you decided to, to transition your life into becoming a journalist. Uh-huh. But you've kind of fallen into this niche category. How did you go from investigating to war reporting to writing about what you do now? Right. It's like self-help for people who don't like self-help, right? Or like really smart people self-help. Because it's basically kind of these explorations of why we do the things we do and how to make them better. And I, I think there's there's actually a common thread there, which is, so when I'm an investigative reporter, one of the things that I'm trying to do is I'm trying to reveal to people um, these hidden structures in our world that if you're a, that it might be keeping someone down, might be hurting someone in ways that they don't understand, or that you might be a part of and, and you might not feel great about it and at least give you the choice. So for instance, I, d- I did a big series about um, Apple and, and um, working conditions in the factories that make iPads and iPhones. Um, and th- that series went on to, to win the Pulitzer Prize. But the 
the sort of takeaway from it was these the iPhone that you carry in your pocket is an amazing device but there is a human cost associated with that device. There's first of all the human cost of people in China and the working conditions inside the factories. There's actually another cost, right, which is that one of the reasons why American manufacturing has declined is because is because we've sent so much manufacturing to China and the reason why it's in China is because all the supply chains are growing up there. That essentially, once you get one place that's strong in manufacturing, it becomes kind of a black hole that sucks in all the other manufacturing. And so our our focus on trying to get a new phone every single year or wanting that phone to be relatively inexpensive, that's actually one of the things that pushes manufacturing out of the United States and into other countries, which is fine. Like that's as long as people make that choice with their eyes wide open, right? They understand that they're participating. I mean, I own an iPhone, but, but it's just important to understand that you're participating in a, in a system that has both pluses and minuses. You know, there was a woman named Wendy Wood who is now at USC, but when she was at Duke, she followed hundreds of people around for almost a full year. And what she discovered was that only about half of the of the choices that people made every day were actually a choice that they were making deliberately. The other half were habits, things that they did automatically, almost unthinkingly. And they looked like decisions to an outsider, but actually the person hadn't made any choice. They were just doing the same thing that they had always done because they had this habit. About 40 to 45% of what we all do every day is a habit. And so, and habits feel powerful, right? You feel like when you're in the grip of them, it feels so, so um, in some ways, powerless, right? It, 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 I mean, the power of habit for me sort of started with this basic question, which is, if I'm so smart and so successful, like, why can't I wake up and go running in the morning? Why is it such a struggle to do that? Or if I'm so smart and so, so successful, like, why don't I weigh 20 pounds less? Like, why are these things so hard? And the truth is, it's because unless you understand how habits work, unless you understand the neurological systems in your own life, then you tend to be a slave to them. But once you do understand them, once you have control over them, then you can start making choices again. And you get power over how you live. So how do you gain that power? How do you start controlling those habits? So the first thing to, to realize is that a habit is not actually one thing. So a habit, and this is the big discovery of essentially the last 15 years, is that a habit has three components. There's a cue, which is a trigger for an automatic behavior to start. And then there's the routine, which is the behavior itself, which is the, the thing we think of as the habit. You know, the thing that everyone from Aristotle to Oprah says that you ought to change. And then finally, there's a reward. And that reward always exists. For every single habit you have in your life, there is a reward, even if you don't perceive it at first. That reward is how your brain learns to remember that chunk of behavior, that, that, that cue routine reward in the future and make it happen automatically. And within research, this is known as the habit loop, right? Cue, routine, and reward. And what we've really learned is that although we tend to focus on the behavior, on the routine, the cue and the reward are equally, if not more, powerful. And so the key to changing a habit is to really diagnose that cue and that reward and begin thinking hard about why that habit exists, what reward is causing it to come into existence rather than just focusing on what you're doing. Was it kind of an investigation for yourself? Like, I have this question. I'm going to go figure it out and write about it. What's that defining moment before so it, somebody writes a book about it was, this? It was a couple of those. So my wife was pregnant with her first child, 
Um, and I thought it would be nice to be able to buy a house and we didn't have any money to do so. So, so when you're a newspaper reporter, um, like, you know, sort of an obvious step is to write a book. And on top of that, there was this basic question. Like I just didn't, I was frustrated, you know, my wife was going to have our kid and I was, I wanted to be a good father to him. And, and there was just a bunch of questions I had about like, if I can't make myself do certain things, how on earth am I going to make a baby, like teach a baby to be healthy, right? Like, you know, again, it's like this exercise thing. Like I I really wanted to exercise and like maybe once a week I could I could manage to get myself out the door to go running. And it was like, it was like pulling teeth the whole time. And I, I kept on thinking like, I'm able to make myself work for 20 hours straight on an article. Why can't I make myself go running for 20 minutes? And so I really wanted to understand that. And and it and I will say it worked. You know, I run half marathons now um, on a regular basis, and basically run the, every day if I'm not traveling. And, and there is this magic in understanding ourselves the, over the last twenty or thirty years, and particularly this is particularly true for business. There's been a huge focus on big choices, right? So if you think about the books that have been really popular for managers, um, what they do is they talk about how to come up with the right strategy, right? Your job as a CEO is to make three important choices a year. How do you make those choices so that you make the right decision? And that's true. That's important. You have to make the big strategic decisions correctly. But as we know, life is lived in a series of very small choices that we almost don't even make every single day. What you have for lunch today does not matter. But what you have for lunch every single day determines whether you'll live happily and healthily or whether you'll end up in a hospital, right? How much you spend on a cup of coffee today or on going out to dinner versus eating at home this evening, that doesn't matter. It's, you know, $4, $10. But how much you spend every single day, that matters enormously to determine whether you have enough money to retire or not. These small daily choices that we make that, that sometimes feel like choices but are actually habits, the things that we actually – can relegate away from choices to make them automatic because therefore they get easier. Those are much, much more important or at least as important as these big strategic decisions. But we really haven't focused on those quite as much as we have on everything else. And so I wanted to, I wanted to understand what we know about that and share it with folks. So you, you figured out this running dilemma and now you go run half marathons. It's in a book and you're sharing that with the world. How does that make you feel? I mean, it's, it's great. No, when I get emails from people who say, you know, I read your book and I had a drinking problem for 30 years and I read your book and it helped me figure out how to like walk into AA and how to use um, that intervention. Or even people who just say, you know, I have a kid. There's a chapter on sort of willpower and how willpower works. People who, who walk in and who write me letters and say, you know, I have a young child and I use this technique to help them learn sort of willpower habits and I can see them doing better at school and I can see them being happier. That, that feels great. But what I'm really focused on right now is trying to figure out what the next book is and sort of what the questions are. Um, particularly, and, and this gets a little bit more abstract, but we are living through this this period of economic change that is as significant as any economic revolution over the past 100, 150 years, right? What's happening right now is as important as what happened during the Industrial Revolution, the Agrarian Revolution. And what's interesting is when you go and you look at diaries of people living through those revolutions, what you find is even among people who are very successful, you just find a tremendous amount of anxiety, right? People don't know what's coming next. It feels scary. 
in that anxiety, it's not a sign that things are wrong. That anxiety is a sign that people are reacting as they should be, that they're reacting sensibly to sort of all the change around us. And like right now, um, you know, when I started thinking and talking about this stuff, it was before the last presidential election. Like I sort of expected that it was post-financial crisis that maybe things would get calmer, but they've actually gotten way more, whether, whether you like the president or not, like they're just way more uncertain right now, right? Things are just much more anxiety producing. And, and so the, the real thing that I'm spending a lot of time thinking about is what do we know about how people succeed in a period like this? Like, what do we know about how people find meaning and importance and choose work that matters to them in a period where it seems like so much is up for grabs and so much changes from day to day? In the 1950s, if you liked to build things, you were set. You went to Detroit, you built things, you didn't have to worry about it. Today, if you like to build things, that is not at all a guarantee that you're going to be successful in building things. Right, so how do we, how do we learn to live in an economy that is changing so quickly, in a world that is changing so quickly, in ways that our lives feel meaningful and important, and happy? And so that's kind of what I'm spending a lot of time thinking about now. Interesting. It's like anxiety is about the unknown and what's to come. That's right. Yeah, anxiety is is in part about the unknown, and and not being certain of what's coming next. I mean, again, in the 1950s, if you if you lived through World War II and the post-World War II period, it was pretty clear like what your purpose was. It was to bring democracy to the world and then to create prosperity because prosperity and democracy are hand in hand. Now it's less clear, right? Should you, should you build an app? Like does an app actually make the world a better place? Um, should you love companies like Google or should you be scared of them? Should you love Facebook or should you be scared of it? There's a lot, and I don't even know if anxiety is the right word, just a lot of questions. And that's good. Like during economic revolutions, amazing things happen, right? That is the world becomes a better place. More people have been pulled out of poverty in the last 30 years than in any other period in the history of the earth. That's incredible. But that doesn't necessarily mean that like waking up tomorrow and knowing, figuring out what to do that will make you happy and satisfied and have meaning and purpose is that therefore easy. But I think that's a solvable problem. Well, I'm looking forward for this next book to come Me too. out. Well, it was great having you here, Charles. Yeah. And we really appreciate you taking the time to take this little moment out of your day to, to have this little recording. My pleasure. Us. So thank you very much. Thank you. Now it's time for Tangible Takeaways, where we break down big ideas into bite-sized pieces you can take with you and implement in your workplace culture. The first is that every habit has three components. The cue, the routine, and the reward. The cue is the trigger for the behavior. The routine is the desired behavior itself. And the reward is what you get out of doing it. Now, most people, when they're trying to change their habits, focus on the routine, the behavior itself. But what Charles Duhigg says is that the cue and the reward are equally powerful. The key to changing our habits lies in understanding why those habits exist. What rewards are driving them? What cues are triggering them? If you want to learn more about the idea of a habit loop, bike down to your local library and check out a copy of Charles Duhigg's The Power of Habit. Or, you know, order it on Amazon Prime like everything else. The second is that anxiety is a necessary part of change. As Charles puts it, 
anxiety is a sign that people are reacting sensibly to the change around them, which should be some comfort to those of us who feel like we're living in the age of anxiety. But to those of us in charge of shaping and molding our workplace cultures, it's a blinking red light on the instrument panel. Cultural growth, however well-designed, can lead to anxiety in the workplace. Don't fear it, though. Fight it with clear, upfront communication. Tell your leaders, your team members, your executives why their workplace culture is important, how they play a role in it, and what will be changing. It won't just ease their minds. It'll open them to new ideas and help them become a part of a thriving workplace culture. The third is that I'm not sure if the idea of the U.S. military being the largest habit-changing machine in history is interesting or terrifying. On one hand, think of the data, the learnings, the uncountable insights into what makes people really tick. On the other hand, maybe all those conspiracy theories about secret military mind control projects aren't so crazy after all. Who else has the money, the means, the technology, the sheer power to manipulate the malleable minds of the American public and make them think that The Bachelor should be on for 23 seasons. Not to mention spin-offs like The Bachelorette, Bachelor Pad, Bachelor in Paradise, Bachelor in Paradise After Paradise, and The Bachelor Winter Games. That's it for this episode of The Workplace. If you liked it, or even if you didn't, please rate, review, and subscribe to The Workplace on Stitcher. It really helps us grow and get to know you better. The Workplace is sponsored by O.C. Tanner, the global leader in engaging workplace cultures. O.C. Tanner's Culture Cloud provides a single, modular suite where all employee experience apps are in sync, giving teams the integrated tools they need when, where, and how they need them. If you want your organization to become a place where people can't wait to come to work in the morning, go to octanner.com.